0: I am Borikid Ghosh on behalf of Ideas for India. Today we are talking to Professor Avinash Dixit, who's John uh, JF Jarrett University Professor of Economics Emeritus in Princeton. Professor Dixit is a leading economic theorist. Recently he has also been doing research on things like governance and economics of developing countries. Uh, Thank you very much, Professor Dixit, for sparing us your time let me start with a question that uh, in india we talk about a lot which is that you know although after 1991 our growth rates have picked up but uh, unlike china or taiwan and some other uh, east asian countries we haven't been really able to launch a manufacturing boom. unlike them you know manufacturing share of gdp has been stuck at 15 percent uh, now a lot of your research is on investment and investment strategies. So, so I wanted some um, ideas from you about how you know what where are we going wrong what kind of policies can be adopted to, to change the investment climate uh, towards manufacturing?
1: First of all, I think one should guard against thinking that China did everything right and we should imitate them. that certainly is not the case. they did a number of things wrong excessive lending to state-owned enterprises is just one of them. But that said, they did have a number of conditions that were appropriate for investment growth and um, manufacturing development, which perhaps don't exist in India. One of them is infrastructure, both physical roads, electricity supply which has been a big problem in India, some of these things were uh, in much better condition in China and of course they improved dramatically over the last 20 years. Also what one might call institutional infrastructure and there there's a difference between what exists on paper and what exists in reality. So even though China did not have a very good structure of laws of property right protection and contracts. Somehow, de facto, they were able to deliver enough assurance to investors, and particularly foreign investors, that their property will be protected. And why this happened has been discussed by many people who are better local experts, but one of the things was that... uh, local government officials had a state in development of their own region and they realized the importance of attracting and keeping these firms. In India, on the other hand, very often although laws existed on paper, they were very poorly enforced. Everybody knew that courts were so backlogged that getting the courts to enforce contracts was a hopeless task. Other, in some instances in fear, institutions had to develop for contracts. Property rights, corruption was a big problem in that you never knew when an official would uh, demand bribes for um, ability to use your property, uh, deny you licenses, things of that kind, even though that went down after 91. It, certainly didn't go down anywhere to the extent, especially at local levels, that was necessary. So India could improve a number of those things, but then also China had some other advantages, especially for the kind of education that's important for a manufacturing labour force. And I don't mean high-end university education, but good high school education, and that's something where like India has lagged very badly. So as usual, successful development is a combination of a um, large number of things. And basically, the, they're kind of a synergistic or mutual complements. You have to get more or less all of them right, not enough to get two or three right.
0: So to ask a follow-up question, you know, uh, taking a cue from some things you said, I mean, it often comes up that uh, was is, is democracy a handicap for India? To take specific instances, like you know, land acquisition has been a big problem. Uh, there are populist pressures about you know, uh, which which might weaken the guarantee for, for FDI uh, and the regulatory environment. Is that, is that a fact?
1: At a very general level. Researchers have not found a difference between democracies and authoritarian regimes as far as uh, average growth performance is concerned. It's in the variance. Authoritarian regimes have a much bigger variance of their performance. So you may end up with uh, Lee Kuan Yew, but you may end up with Mugabe or uh, uh, someone like uh, Mobutu. And in a democracy, you may not get so many kind of uh, brilliant leaders, but also mistakes are more easily avoided by having checks and balances. For the specific issue of land acquisition, it is important to have proper procedures that stop arbitrary seizures without compensation, etc. And Although then uh, those kind of things may be carried out to excess by populist pressures, some precaution is necessary. I don't think it's a good idea to allow authoritarian governments to seize land arbitrarily.
0: Yeah, you also mentioned corruption, and this has been, uh, especially I think in the last five years, this has become a major electoral issue in India. And the last government, uh, the EPA 2 one of the major reasons that's uh, ascribed to their uh, downfall, their defeat, is the major scandals regarding uh, coal block allocations, spectrum allocations, and so on. Some of the Polish initi- initiatives, I just mentioned demonetization, but the you know, major um, sort of reason cited for taking that measure was, was to curb corruption. So, on the issue of corruption, and as you said, you know, it's, it's, it's absolutely central to having a good investment climate. What is the general direction that policy should take? You know, what are the kind of broad measures or approaches that we can take to, to reduce this menace?
1: My view is that actually it is hopeless to expect the government, any government to do the whole job. After all, Politicians and bureaucrats are the main beneficiaries of corruption, so there will always be obstacles to making and enforcing good laws, they'll leave loopholes, they'll poor implementation of the laws, etc. It's important to have some support, particularly from the top, but uh, I think more and more that Really, it has to be a communal effort at multiple
0: levels. Civil society.
1: Civil society getting in, uh, education right from the youngest levels like they did in Hong Kong. Basically, it changed the whole culture. So, in India, all the things are changing. Corruption seems to be more or less accepted. Hey, that's the way of life. and. If you want to get on, you've got to Mm -hmm. give bribes or in other ways, participate in the corrupt process. Right. You want to change that culture to where at least the substantial part of the population regards that as a very bad thing. Mm -hmm. And if you're exposed, you will be shamed to an extent that may even be a worse punishment than prison. And that's very difficult to do. It's got to be a slow process. Uh, you will never have hundreds in success, but to measure community effort, civil society effort, business community effort, those kind of things are essential. Mm.
0: So that's a very interesting line of thought. Let me just uh, explore that a little bit with you. You know, if you think of some of the sort of movements outside the, you know, not not uh, by political parties but by civil society there was the Annahazare movement uh, against corruption. And uh, with respect to other issues like, you know, women's safety in Delhi, for example, there was, you know, after the Nirbhaya yeah. case, there was this massive, total spontaneous uh, sort of gathering of people. The Annahazare uh, movement against corruption, which came from civil society, then had this offshoot where Arvin Kechiwal formed his own party and so on. And um, in retrospect, it seems that it has fizzled away, right? So, there's there's one instance, I think, where a civil society kind of led movement got dissipated. So, so how do you prevent that is, is, is one question. But the other thing I wanted to sort of, you know, pursuing what you just said, in both of these cases, there has been a lot of anger, popular anger, against corruption, against, you know, um, uh, safety of women. But then also at the popular level, as you said, everybody takes bribes. But right? it almost seems like the crowd, the people, at the same time they are participating in these vices and are angry about it. So is there a cognitive dissonance? Is there a sort of realization that we ourselves are not, uh, should have to reform?
1: Two parts to that. Let me take the second one first. I think those two kind of fit well together in that people participate but are angry because each of them feels helpless. When a policeman or a bureaucrat demands a bribe, what are you going to do? It's in collectivity that you have power. It's like a prisoner's dilemma. For everybody, it's the dominant strategy given the situation to bribe. But if the whole collectivity could take action, enforce a norm, By which nobody will give bribes, then they could all have a better sustained equilibrium with the system of norms and social or other kinds of sanctions that would be better for all of them. And that could solve both of those problems the participation and the anger. Coming to the first one now, the movements you mentioned, although I think they were laudable, were kind of. Uh, organized by idealists rather than by practical people who actually could give serious thought to how to get it done. Instead of people like Hazare or Kejriwal, if you get someone like, let's say, just to give an example, Nandan Nelkani involved, he single-handedly pushed through the biometric ID system to an amazing extent. I mean, nothing like this exists in America. And if you could get someone like him interested and involved in leading a social movement to fight corruption, it would have, I think, much better success.
0: Mm-hmm. So you think it's, it's practical men who are... Yeah, you combine men.
1: idealism right. and practicality. So, so moral
0: suasion would not be the sort of leading... Uh, oh no, it, it,
1: it, it, it will be a part moral. of that, but... it's got to be backed up by other sensible practical action yes
0: Uh, let me change tracks Uh, you know you have written a very famous book on international trade Uh, it's been one of the areas you've contributed in Uh, and international trade is very much in the news now right so for for decades we economists have said you know trade is a great thing it increases the size of the cake uh, we have also said that it creates winners and losers, but that has often been sort of amended to a sort of more positive, gung-ho message perhaps. Uh, and now with Brexit, with Trump, uh, we see what many people interpret as a backlash against trade, that that especially blue collar industrial workers in America in Europe, uh, they have lost out wage stagnation and so on. Um, so the principle of free trade. I think it's fair to say is is pretty much under threat. So what is your view on that and I also want you to sort of talk a little bit about we the economics profession. Do we need to sort of rethink about our message that we take outside the profession?
1: Yes, I would agree that we have not emphasized the losses enough and the Bitterness and anger that built up is hardly surprising. I'm surprised it took so long. We should be more honest. Politicians and policy makers should be more honest, more importantly. And we know that bigger pie can be redistributed in such a way that everybody shares in the benefits. Those kind of policies, appropriate redistribution policies, should be a part of the package right from the outset that liberalizes trade. The reaction, I'm sure, will be more favorable if this was credibly seen to be taking place. However, I don't mean merely giving people handouts because people can correctly perceive uh, some dignity in work. They don't want to say, be told, you guys are losers, your coal mines are gone or your auto work has gone to Mexico or Japan or wherever Uh, and uh, we are going to give you a little bit of money to wake up for your losses. A much better kind of policy will be an overall better social safety net, especially in areas like health and education which you might want to talk about separately. And in particular, education policy that gives uh, people a set of flexible skills. So that if the auto industry is under threat from import competition, they'll be able to move fairly quickly somewhere else. And we've never, ever done that. I don't know almost any country that's had that kind of farsighted policy.
0: So, then you're saying that perhaps we have to fundamentally change our education and pedagogy so that, you know, I mean, so far we have had systems where a person would get trained, start working at age 20, and be settled for life in a profession. So now we're having a world where things are changing so fast that we can't wait for people to retire. Uh, So, so.
1: Yeah. We've got to give people the kinds of skills that will equip them to follow not one line of work for 40 years but be able to move to other lines of work every 5 or 10 years uh, with appropriate retraining, maybe to some extent, as opportunities open up or close.
0: So even the best, like you know, the American system the German system, which has such a strong emphasis on vocational training, uh, are they, do you think they are up to the mark on, on, on this aspect or they have to go a long way?
1: Uh, usually they have not been. I, mean, I know a little bit more about what happens in America. There is the Trade Adjustment Assistance Program which largely has been a failure because uh, it basically kind of uh, teaches people to do things in the same industry which is declining and some of them get hired back into the industry but a large number of people don't, and uh, the training that they're given is basically wasted.
0: And with respect to social safety nets, which you said should be, you know, uh, yeah, uh, but, but
1: that should be a kind of general thing that's available to everybody. It could be a negative income tax, it could be a saving scheme that will get people to save while they have jobs and then they'll be able to use those savings at times when they lose them until they find the next one. Not something that's kind of given as a handout to losers, as they would see it. What
0: about universal basic income, which people are talking about a lot?
1: That, in a way, is a lot like a negative income tax. Depending on who is proposing that, Sometimes it's proposed at too high a level. The income that's sometimes proposed as uh, the basic entitlement or whatever is often so high that to sustain that uh, tax rates would have to be astronomical and that's not just doable. Uh, That kind of scheme is uh, manageable, I think, but it's got to be a little bit more lean
0: so yeah, I mean, People have made calculations even for something which is like $10,000 in America for the individual. Uh, I think that the problem is very, very high, like 10% of no. GDP. I
1: mean, if um, GDP is 50000 per capita, you want to give everybody 10000 the uh, tax rate to sustain that is going to be quite high. Uh, of course, you also need to add on the tax rate for actual government expenditures on goods and services and that will just not be feasible.
0: So people like Bernie Sanders and others, they have advocated high capital taxes saying that there's a lot of slack there, maybe, Uh, you think? uh...
1: Uh, Actually, there are enough loopholes that there's some slack there, but uh, nowhere near what uh, some of the most extreme left in America are arguing.
0: Let me come to something which you, um, I heard you give a talk yesterday about uh, which is uh, climate change. This is a new interest and you're, you're doing research on this. So yesterday you said that based on a certain kind of approach or calculations that, uh, that a strong case can be made that uh, most countries in the world should spend considerable resources on, on reducing Greenhouse gas emissions and, and reducing the carbon for, footprint. Um, if I remember correctly, you estimated numbers between one percent and five percent, in that sort of range. So, if you could tell, uh, explain a little bit for our viewers, uh, you know, this perspective. And also, I let me sort of add on a question, and maybe you can sort of take them sequentially. Uh, this uh, after the Trump administration has left Paris Accord. And everybody's wondering what, is, you know, what does that uh, imply for the future of global cooperation? So, so something about that too. Uh,
1: starting with your first question, the kind of counter-argument, the reservation that some people would have, certainly in America, is, um, we don't really know that these bad things are happening. They're going to happen because of carbon emissions. Why should we be spending something? And the simple answer is that, yeah, sure, there is uncertainty, but if there is uncertainty, you take precautions to reduce the level of the risk and uh, reduce the damages if it happens. So when you leave your house, you don't know that a burglar is going to walk in, but uh, you do take precautions. You lock the door. you uh, don't leave very valuable things in the same side, maybe leave them in the bank safety deposit box, um, things like that. So uh, we're kind of uh, saying the same thing, that uh, yes there's uncertainty, the right response is precautions and insurance. So the, that's exactly what we're saying and the fact that the numbers came out substantial We wouldn't have known ahead of time that they would be substantial, but they are. And we should take that seriously. I should add that this is not really definitive research. This is starter, exploratory research. And as people bring up other points that are pertinent, we refine our uh, estimates of the basic parameters or something. Maybe it won't stay between 1-5%, and maybe it will be less, maybe it will be more, but that's the nature of ongoing research. So we are putting this out as a part of the process of research and discussion. The second was the Paris Accord. And again, this is tentative and suggestive rather than definitive, but our work does suggest that policies of different countries are mutual complements, that when the U.S. withdraws, the willingness of others to sacrifice will go down, and that will increase greenhouse gas emissions even more as a result of the others' actions than what would have happened from the U.S. withdrawal alone. So the U.S. withdrawal is causing a kind of multiplier bad effect on the problem.
0: Let me come back to India and I want to ask you um, about higher education in India. I mean, of course, this is not to say that, you know, primary and secondary education are in good health, but, but leaving that aside, you know, you've been educated in India. You've been, you went to Bombay yes. University and then you've been ed- you uh, educated and taught in multiple uh, continents and, and uh, different systems. There's a lot of uh, angst about the state of higher education in India. And me, coming from, uh, you know, Indian higher education is, is very much in the middle of it. None of our, uh, the newspapers often report, uh, none of our universities figure in the top 200 list, times higher education supplement, what have you. Uh, recently the Indian government has started this push uh, to, to address this sort of concern that, you know, then select institutions will be chosen and will be pampered and will be given various kinds of special treatment. So, so, I want your views on, you know, what should we do, what should be the broad strategies to create some institutions of excellence in India. I mean, take the field of economics, for example, right? Starting from you, I mean, there were some, some of the leading uh uh, names in the in the field are Indians and have been educated in India, but we haven't been able to build institutions where we draw this human capital and you know create a high quality education for the next generation. So so what is missing? I kind of look
1: coming at it from a rather different direction. I would be against. The government selecting 10 institutions, a kind of top-down approach. All kinds of problems. With that. Who would do the selection? I think the phrase was some eminent persons. Who choose the eminent persons? And quite likely, they would be insiders in the higher education process who are more or less complicit in all the problems that exist. They would choose exactly the kinds of institutions that they came from and that would just hamper the failures. All over the world, uh, cities and whatnot uh, put in a lot of resources into trying to become the next Silicon Valley. Exactly the kind of top-down approach. And mostly it's total failure. And exactly, I suspect, the same kind of thing would happen with this. I would favor exactly the opposite kind of approach, a bottom-up approach, where um, maybe the government would give a little bit of starter seed funding to a large number of attempts, and then gradually see which of those are working well, nurture them, and let the uh, smartest, brightest, researchers etc emerge through this process. The kind of guidance that still I think is most useful is one given by Asar Lindbeck who established the very successful Institute for International Economic Studies in Stockholm and he uh, distilled his wisdom into what have come to be called Linbeck's Ten Commandments. And you can actually Google for them, and you'll be able to see uh, them. I don't know if you have already. I, I saw yeah. it have some point. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and I don't remember them all, but they are uh, kind of things like, right from the beginning, you have to insist on your researchers. Uh, attempting to publish in the top international journals. We don't kind of found local journals for them, but to get get something out in print. Mm -hmm. Have interactions with foreign scholars, get them to come on visits, uh, things like that. Important that research and teaching are complements, not substitutes. So it's important that the institute is located in the university and not kind of isolated out there on top of a hill somewhere. You've got to focus, at least initially the institute should have a relatively narrow focus of expertise in which it builds a critical mass. Interaction among researchers is important. Unless you've got four or five people who constantly talk to each other it's not going to work. So the the number of these kind of things that are useful guidelines but I think they are best applied in a context where you start small and not start kind of uh, top-down trying to create the next Harvard or uh, actually getting my PhD from MIT, we used to regard Harvard as that inferior institution up the river anyway, but uh, one try and create the next Harvard.
0: You know, the, many of your points I think um, would be um, very valuable lessons. So, for example, the synergy between uh, research and teaching, mm-hmm. we seem to have uh, abandoned it. Right? Many of our public universities have this model where Undergraduate and postgraduate are totally separated into different tracks. Yeah, and, and so
1: and that I think is a totally wrong way to go. The, the easiest way to make that point is contrast to, um, the U.S. and France. Even for the moment, forgetting undergraduate, graduate level teaching and uh, professional research in the U.S. are very much tied together. In France there are these research institutes and then there are large universities and the relative success or failure of those tools is yes. immediate evidence.
0: I think one institution which the US has, which the entire world can only look up to is the university system. It's, it's, ah you know, broken healthcare, that's okay. But don't know
1: how well that will survive the current <laughs> political issue in the US, but let's uh, just hope the storm
0: ensues. Let me come to my final question, and then we'll uh, we'll wrap it up. You've been working quite a bit on political economy, political questions, you know, political determinants of economic policy and so on, and so I want to ask a question which is sort of an um, overarching and a broad question, which is you know, unlike say the richer countries, in India the median voter is poor. Right? The average person who is casting his ballot is, is very much poor. So you would expect by you know classical kind of results like median voter theorem or uh, extensions of that, that uh, policies would, would largely serve the poor and would be redistributive and so on. But looking at many aspects, I mean we have failed in that respect. Right, Public health, public education, badly broken. Very underfunded. So, what is the mystery? Why? You know? Why is? It? Uh, I don't know. If there's a mystery.
1: <laughs> you said, unlike richer countries, what struck me is that America is exactly the same. Adjusted for the relative interpretation of poverty, rather than the absolute <coughs> interpretation, the median voter in America is relatively poor. Mm-hmm. Um, All those voters in West Virginia, middle of Pennsylvania, in the South, in Alabama or Mississippi or whatever, why do they vote for a party that, in fact, uh, really ends up making policies for the rich? And partly they have, uh, the, the party has appealed to different dimensions of interest to these people, often religion, So it's amazing how many people in Alabama recently said that they would never vote for a Democrat because he was in favor of abortion rights.
0: So, is this Thomas Frank view what is the matter with cancers? Social values? Quite
1: quite a lot of that, uh, social issues. And in the same kind of way, I'm sure in India and Indian states, uh, replace religion by caste, maybe, replace In America there is also somewhat behind the surface but not always below the surface is the issue of race and similar kind of things in India happen in the form of regional differences, caste differences, religion differences and it's by cleverly appealing to those kind of dimensions of uh, people's attitudes that Politicians very often succeed in gathering following where where on strictly economic
0: interests they should never have. So, for the rise of Trump, would you say that we should? Do do you look at it mostly through this lens that this identity-based brainwashing, if you want to call it, that is mostly behind it, or is it a mixture of economic grievances too? Because yes, yes, very
1: much. Yeah, it's a mixture. So. Trump uniquely identified and noticed how much bitterness really had built up in that rust Belt part of the country and uh, it did go along with some racism, some cultural, religious attitudes, etc. But it was really a combination. I mean, racism wasn't 100% uh, 100% part of the story, all those states voted for Obama twice. Yeah. Uh, so, well, what he did was kind of uh, bring in some of these other things, but certainly created the impression mm-hmm. that he would look after their economic interests, and he has not.
0: Yeah. Yes, <laughs> that tax cuts being a case in point. Professor Dixit, thank you very much for sparing your time. We could have gone on, you know, there's so many things to talk about, but uh, these days you are in India relatively frequently. uh, We are happy to have you come and share your views. So I'm sure we'll have more opportunities to talk. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure and I hope we have another